wonderful thing to do. But we're glad you're present today and welcome each and every one. Let's just worship together. Spirit and truth, let's call on the Lord and uh, let's just go before him, uh, his throne of grace, and just uh, have a prayer and recognize him as Lord today. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you so much that you've given us privilege and honor to be able to call you Father, to realize that you are our friend, you are our provider, you are our caregiver, uh, you are the substance and, and our life, and we thank you, we praise you, we honor you, because we know that you are uh, the Prince of Peace, uh, you are our mighty counselor, uh, you are Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and we recognize you as that, and we just want to praise your name thanking you for each person that we're able to communicate with in friendship, knowing that our common goal of being in this place is because of who you are and your goodness and your grace. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for dying for us. And thank you that you live within us, that we continue to celebrate each and every day. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, you, when you think of, as we celebrated last week of Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday is not a one Sunday celebration in the life of the Christian body. It is an everyday celebration. And today I want to continue our thoughts to remind us about the resurrection. Uh, it's amazing what a difference one year makes. And you know, one year ago, this past, well, one year ago today, uh, I was in this building with just a few people preaching an Easter message, which was like me being in a preaching lab in seminary, uh, you know, with a bunch of empty pews and a video camera. And, and it was amazing. And yet I presented this message, but in a different form. So I'm going to represent this message because now I have live people that I'm able to look at. And so you may recall some of these, but I'm going to do it in a different, little different twist. And it is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the title of it is to call in the witnesses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it is Paul who's talking to the uh, church of Corinth, and he says, Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel that I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You also say, are also saved by it if you hold to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you believed to no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures." And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then all the apostles. And last of all, as to the one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But as God's grace, by God's grace, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not ineffective. 
However, I worked more than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace that was within me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we preach, and so you have believed. Now, if we were in a courtroom of law, and you've got a plaintiff and a defendant, and you've got a jury, and if the lawyer is presenting his case, he wants to reach the emotions of all the jurors. So today, you are the jurors, and I am the lawyer. And we're going to present a case to you, and then at the end, the most important question is, do you believe? I want to show you in Scripture that there is evidence, physical, historical evidence, that Christ is alive, that he was seen by over 500 people. And if I have to bring in all 500 people to testify as a witness, then I will in order to convince you so that you can believe that Christ is alive. Now, if you allow me to bring in over 500 witnesses, then we're going to be here till next Sunday. So plan on taking a nap as we go along. But we're not going to go that route. And so think of it this way. Think of it that, that you and I are having a blank slate before us. Do we really believe that Christ is alive? Or do we really believe that he never arose from the dead? And so by the evidence that presented, you can determine from Scripture that is recorded for your own self and decide whether he's alive or not. And you go to this passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in Paul lists all of those that Christ appeared to. At the very few days after his resurrection, as well as uh, even a couple of years after his resurrection, he appeared in physical form to those who testify that they saw the Christ. And yet, you look at, at all the things that happened, you know, beyond the shroud, beyond the blood, beyond the bandages, beyond the spices, beyond the dark air, he stood alive. And that's what we bank on, that he stood alive. Now, the living Christ rules where the best flags wave in the interior castles of the human heart. But he's alive between, within all of those who believe. Easter is where hell has been shuttered and the world has trembled. The day that the living Savior stood again on the face of the earth changed the world for all those who believe. Easter, the day that Christ moved out of his temporary residence into the best palaces of humanity to the human heart. He reigns and he rules and he lives within. Easter is the day of the inwardness. We cannot see the inner life, but because of it, we are never the same as he invades our inner life. Those who hold to the resurrection 
in its glorious form, the glorious inwardness that's fully understood by those who believe. The old unbelieving nature dies by baptism the moment Christ dies. And then God the Father brought him back in glorious form and yet brought him back again and was giving wonderful new life and that new life is transferred inwardly to the palace of our own individual heart and we're able to enjoy new life because he stands alive. He's no longer in a grave. He's no longer in a tomb that he stands alive before the whole world. And there are witnesses that testify to the fact that he is alive. Do you believe that he's alive? Life, Christ's life, this marvelous gift is a gift that's given to each of us. And it's a gift that keeps on giving because when we give that gift, uh, as he gives us that gift, we're able to give that gift away. I stand with couples so often in marriage ceremonies after they share their um, commitment to one another in their vows. I usually say this, you have shared a great gift amongst yourselves. It is a gift that you have given to each other that is the greatest gift beyond any other gift that you can give. Knowing that you can go out and buy a lot of gifts you can share those gifts and they will be special because they're given from each other to one another. But the gift that you just gave each other in commitment is a gift that you give to no one else but to each other. It's a gift that keeps on giving every day because as you awaken from bed and you're awakened to your new life that you have with your spouse, it is like you're giving that gift all over again of commitment of, and every year that follows thereafter. And it's also a gift that you take that you've given to one another and received and you give it to the world around you because the people around you take notice of the specialness of the relationship that you share and that specialness of relationship can wear off on someone else and inspire them and encourage them. So it's a gift that keeps on giving. And the Easter life is a gift that keeps on giving. At the moment you come to know Christ, you're given new life then you're taking that new life and you can give that new life away by convincing others of their need for Christ. And each time they receive their new life, each time a person receives that new life, it's a gift that keeps on giving. People take notice of our life and begin to wonder what's the difference in his or her life. It's because we believe that Christ stands at the other entrance, other, other, at the entrance of the empty tomb, and he's alive. He's not laying there on stone. He is alive, and he lives within the human heart. That's the joy of Christ being alive. That's the joy of Easter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul lists six wonderful reasons why we should believe with confidence that Jesus Christ is alive. These six come from six people or people groups who saw Jesus alive who saw him from the dead. So we subpoena all of those witness into this particular setting and to deliver for us their testimony of whether or not that they saw Christ alive. And the first one that Paul mentions in the scripture is that he says he first appeared to Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. He appeared to Peter, one of the, the last people to see the earthly Christ alive 
at his crucifixion was Simon Peter. His steadfast commitment. He was the one who said that I will go to great lengths to serve you. And I will always be there for you. And I will stand the test of time for you. I will be there when no one else is there. That's what Peter said to Christ. I can be counted on because I love you as I see you. You are alive to me and you'll always be. And I will serve you with all my heart until that farm yard cock crowed and he denied him three times. Following Calvary, Simon Peter, sweltering with the crushing guilt of denying Christ, he finds himself in such a painful Gethsemane himself of denial. Peter weeps bitterly over his actions. After that, he spent three days in deep remorse for all that he had done for the living Son of God. Then Easter was born. Then in compassion, Jesus made his first appearance to Cephas, to Peter. And yet you can almost visualize their meeting. Christ walks into this still grieving Simon Peter. He slips his arm around him and he says, Peter, it's going to be all right. I'm alive, Peter. Even beyond your sorry actions, I am alive. No sin will hold you captive because I have come to set you free. Because when you know the Son, the Son will make you free. You are forever forgiven, Simon. And he tells him and he convinces him that I am alive and I make the difference up in your life. And that inwardness that you experience now is an inwardness that will go with you for the rest of your life because I live within you, Simon Peter. Peter testifies that Christ appears to him. He appears to him not once but twice. Also on the Sea of Galilee, this recorded in John chapter 21, it was when Peter and the other disciples got a little bit weary, got a little bit impatient, and they went back to their former way of life, got in a boat and went fishing. They fished all night long, the very duplicate of what took place when he was called as a disciple that's recorded in Luke chapter 6. Now three and a half years later, he's doing it again in John chapter 21, but this time Jesus is in resurrected form and says to Simon Peter and those in the boat, hey guys, have you caught anything? No, we haven't. He said, throw your, boat, throw your nets on the right side of the boat. They did. They couldn't even haul in the fish. And Peter realized at that point, did this, the most beautiful swan dive, dived into the lake and swam to, swam to the shore. And there was Christ standing there. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than anything else in your life? And he says, you know, I love you. He said, Peter, I'm going to ask you again. Do you love me with everything? Do you love me with your whole being? He says, yes, Lord, I love you. And Peter, I'm going to ask you a third time. Do you love me with everything, every fiber of your being? Yes, I love you, Lord. Then go feed my sheep. He basically says to Peter, Peter, you failed me. 
And I'm not, that sin is not holding you down. Why? Because I have covered your sin. I have forgiven you. I have empowered you. I live within you. Now get from this shore of Galilee, get back, on, back in this shelf of usefulness and go serve me because I live within you. I will proceed every move because I am alive. And that is your calling, Peter. And we know Peter would do that. And he gave his life for the rest of his life, died a martyr's death even because he lived and he loved the Lord God. Then Paul says, he not only appeared to Cephas, but he also appeared to the apostles, to the twelve. If only one man sees a dead man alive, it may be called an hallucination. But on that resurrection Sunday, twelve men had the same wonderful hallucination at the same time? Don't think so. The apostles saw what Simon saw, and how did it affect them? It forged them forward. Why is that? They forged them forward to become a bunch of bunnies brought back to life as men, as men who went fishing for other people. And at his crucifixion, the apostles all scattered, but now standing before them was the hope of their life. And they got back into the boat of usefulness all over again. Why? Because Christ appeared to them. In their grief, in their fear, in their lack of hope, in their shattered world, in their confusion, in their pain, Jesus stood there before these disciples and says, Guys, I love you. You are no longer held captive because of those fears. You're no longer held captive because of the hopelessness of your life. You're no longer held captive because of all the things that, that are within you emotionally. Why? Because I stand on the other side of the cave and I am alive and I stand here before you and I'm telling you, get back to where you were because you're going to change the world. You're going to turn the whole world upside down and you're going to start churches all over the world and Christianity is going to spread to all over the world because of you guys committed to me. They saw him alive and they changed the world. They turned their world upside down for Jesus and many of them, if not all of them, would eventually die a martyr's death because they lived for Christ. But we realize that there's one missing. There was one missing in the bunch of disciples and his name was Thomas. And he appeared to Thomas as well. That's recorded in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John. Twelve apostles, but yet now down to ten because Judas has uh, already left the scene because he denied Christ, committed suicide because he couldn't deal with his own pain of denial. And then there was Thomas, who was not with those disciples or those apostles when he first appeared. And they went to him and they told Thomas, he says, Thomas, we have seen the Lord alive. Thomas was a realist. He had only one response. He said, in me I do, which basically is transliterated of saying, get real. Are you really telling me that this man is alive? It's very uh, it can be interpreted as unless I see him myself, I will not believe. That's what Thomas says. He says, I must see the nail prints in his hands. I must be able to stick my finger through those holes. 
I must be able to take my whole hand and stick it through his pure side before I'll believe that he's alive. And yet the next Sabbath, as 11 of them were standing, talking and laughing, Jesus just appeared in the midst of their company. No coming through the door, no coming through the window, not dropping through the roof. He just appears and he's standing there beside Thomas. And I'm sure he wants to say, <clears throat> hello, Thomas. But he didn't. Guess who's coming for dinner, Thomas? <laughs> All that surrounding, Jesus says, peace be with you. He doesn't rub it in his face. He doesn't arrogantly show his aliveness. He just says to them, peace be with you. Peace I give to you. Twice in that recorded scripture in John is where Jesus says, peace I give to you. But here we understand that Thomas is now a believer because he was able to stick his finger in those holes and he was able to run his fist through his side. He was able to see the physicalness that Christ is alive and he believed. Thomas falls down, the scripture says, and begins to worship Jesus, my Lord and my God. So you can imagine what took place with all those disciples when they began to see the emotionalism that was affecting Thomas to the point that Thomas fell on his knees and he reached out to Jesus and he began to worship him and worship at his feet because he realized that Jesus is his life. Jesus is his inward connection. Jesus is the one who waves the flag of victory in his life. Jesus is the one who gives him forgiveness. Jesus is the one who has set him free from all the pain and anguish that was within him. Jesus is alive. And Thomas recognizes and begins to believe. Back in Corinthians verse 6, Paul says, The next set of witnesses is that he appeared to over 500 brethren at the same time. And if you want to further strengthen the, this hallucination theory, a lot of people must see him at one time. It changes any theory to becoming a fact. As 500 plus people actually saw him in his aliveness, saw him in a physical form. When Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians some years later, he said that some of these 500 souls that even fallen asleep, but the greater part remain alive to this day. So Paul was saying at the time that he was delivering this to the Corinthian church, he said, I could call all of these people, those that are still alive, and there's many of that 500 still alive that can testify that he is alive. It was P.T. Barnum who once said, you can fool all the people some of the time, and you can fool some of the people all of the time, but you cannot fool all the people all the time. Jesus is seen here by over 500 people at one time, not individually, not privately, but all in a group setting. And here is the Christ, the Christ that becomes their billboard, their neon sign flashing, 
Guys, I am alive. I am high and lifted up. And you understand that I am here for you who believe. And then Paul says he appears to James. Then he appeared to James. And according to Mark chapter 3, James, the half-brother of Christ, had gone with his family to try to get Jesus at one time to quit preaching. It was his half-brother James that really did not believe that Christ was the Christ. Even at the time of his crucifixion, even at the time of his death, even at the time that he had risen again, it was James who did not believe. It's the only time recorded in Scripture that, that, that Jesus appeared to a non-believer here in his resurrected form. James says, he basically says to Jesus that's recorded in Mark, Mark chapter 6, he basically looks at Jesus when he's trying to convince him, man, you're mad. You, have, you are ruining the reputation of our family by calling yourself the Messiah, the Son of God. Man, you, we've got to bring you home. So why don't you quit? You're kind of mad. James didn't believe his brother Jesus and he was a Messiah. And early Christian legend says that he continued working as a carpenter just like Jesus even after the crucifixion. And then one evening, as James meditated in his aloneness, there was this lifting of the latch of his door. And the brother who had doubted this son of God walked into the carpenter shop and cleared his throat like he did with Thomas and said, surprise, surprise. And yet the tale says that Jesus walked up to James, put his arm around his brother and conferred to him an instant faith of the living Christ entered into the heart of this half-brother James. If this is the manner of Jesus' appearance to James, it is an amazing appearance because Jesus appeared to a doubter. He didn't appear to those who already believed. And he convinced his own brother that I am your Lord. You know, some of us would love to hear the testimonies from Pilate and even Caesar or Herod. We would love to, to see Jesus go up to Herod and maybe grab him by the throat and say, Aha, Harry, now do you believe? Or to go up to Pontius Pilate and, says, and get in his chair, move him out of his chair and say, I'm sitting in your chair because I'm the king and I'm the one in charge of your life. Listen up, Pilate. But we don't see that. Jesus has no trace of a grudge. He has no trace of hatred. We know that's the case because of what he said on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had compassion. He had a broken heart for each and every one. And he wanted each and every one to believe and be transformed and be changed by the inner workings of their heart because Jesus wanted to take residence up in the castle of their heart, the human heart. And so Jesus appears to Peter and the apostles and to, Jay and to Thomas and to the 500 and to James, his own brother. And then Paul says, and lastly, he appeared to me. You've got to remember, Paul 
was the, he was the first generation after the apostles. So he did not see physically Christ at all on the face of the earth. And last of all, he says to one who's abnormally born, born again, he also appeared to me. You see, after his resurrection, Jesus stayed on the earth 40 days. That's six weeks. And during that time, Christ kept popping in and out of sealed rooms, confronting people on lonely walkways, making his reality known to many as 500 at one time. And after six weeks, he went back to heaven. And then a whole two years later, Paul says, and he came back and he appeared to me in physical form as one who is abnormally born. Two years later, Paul says, he had come back and appeared to me after he's already ascended back to heaven. He appeared to one who merely doubted him at one time. He appeared to one, as is recorded in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, that, he, that it was Paul who officiated the stoning of Stephen to death, the first Christian martyr. Paul was the militant agnostic Changing his mind about Jesus would be the most difficult thing. Paul, earlier called Saul in Scripture, had heard of the resurrection, and he cries foul, but Paul is discovering the truth. If he ever thought that it would be a resurrection, it'd be like foul. He's calling it out loud. Paul has discovered the real truth. Once he stomped his foot on the floor and said it didn't happen is the very one who says now it has. Once you take the fire, you know, that fiery stand against something, it's awfully hard to take the unstand in your life. Paul had taken such a fiery stand against Christ and against all those who believed and that Jesus would appear to him on the road of Damascus in literal form and would take the scales of blindness off of him and he would see for the first time that Christ is alive. Yet this man who he once persecuted as others killed others and yet stands and says, it is Christ who lives in me. That once I would didn't believe in him, save Christ, and I be crucified even. You see, there's Paul in resurrection believing form. No fluctuation of mood now. Blood pressure at 120 over 80. He's all good, and he's living for Christ. It was Charles, or Chuck Colson, perhaps illustrated it best when he talked about the dark days of the closing of President Nixon's political career. It finally became obvious that the president's men who surrounded the president, Chuck Colson was one of them, and when the time came, Nixon called all six of them together, and they were weary apostles of the one whom they served, and that of Nixon. And yet it was John Dean who blew the whistle on these president's men and on Nixon. And as Nixon was leaving the, the helicopter pad before the impeachment would take place, those six men 
walked out of the political office into prison, shattered by the sins of one person in whom they had trusted their life. If Jesus were a phony, would those 12 men who had walked with Jesus for three and a half years would stand by this resurrection story till the shattering of the end of their own lives? Would they have watched their lives go down the tubes, some elevated on crosses themselves, if they had not seen this Christ? The reason that Jesus can save is because He's alive. And the reason why the people around you and I can be affected is because He's alive. Where's the corpse? Let's set the truth in this earthly context. The word Savior means something like lifeguard in its real watered-down state of interpretation. Suppose we take a dead lifeguard. We have him taxidermied, set up on his, what you call, stand, put sunglasses on him, and no matter how desperate the situation, no matter how we thrash ourselves through the waves and splash the water, that lifeguard is not coming down from that stand to save us. But yet in one instant cry, the living lifeguard will be in the water to rescue us and give us safety and give us salvation when we call on him. Paul Harvey once told a little boy about a little boy of his, whom his doting parents had spoiled into what some may call today as a little brat. And the boy carried with him this burlap sack. And inside this sack was the most pitiful of the stirring and chirping noises of tiny birds. The sound of the imprisoned winged Beats slapping the sides of the burlap could be heard as the boy was walking down the sidewalk. Pitiful chirping. And then issued from this bagged prison, he slung it over his back and he met this old man coming toward him and the old man stopped him. He says, son, what you've got in that sack? And he says back to the older man, I've got a sack full of sparrows. Well, what are you going to do with those sparrows, son? I'm going to take this sack one by one. I'm going to tease them. I'm going to pull their feathers off. And then I'm going to release them to my cat for dinner. And so the man says, how much would you sell me that sack? And the boy thought, well, I'm good time to be an entrepreneur. How about $2 a bird? And the man said, sold. He gave him his money. The little boy thought for a moment, decided, you know, this is worth it. So the old man, he reached in his pocket. He gave him that money. He gave it to the boy. And the older man held it far more kindly as he grabbed that sack than the boy did. As he's carrying it, as he's going down the sidewalk. And in a moment, he untwists the coil that's got the neck of that sack all tight and bound together and he pulls it open and one little bit the sky connects brilliantly to the openness of the sack and one by one the birds fly out of the sack to their freedom 
this living lifeguard who we call on, says now we can rejoice as John, as the disciples, as Peter, as Thomas, as James, as the 500 plus, the men on the side of the road and that of Emmaus, because Jesus is alive. The one who doesn't have the Son doesn't have life, but the one who has the Son has life. And he goes on to understand that Jesus is alive. You see, Easter life has come to set us free. He has come to enable us to let our wings out and soar high. He has come to untie the burlap sack so that we can see the sky, that we can see our freedom, that we can live life, and we can live it to the freedom that He's intended for all of us to live. Jesus is alive. Let all the believers exalt and soar above those mundane matters that cripple and hobble everyday life. He's alive. It's a cry of joy that forbids believers to be earthbound. It's a cry so that we can see that we have the we are the people, the habitat of faith and belief and hope. All of this And if you stand there with that lawyer in the courtroom and he's looking at you and he says, I've presented to you live people, very ones who testify that I have seen the Christ, that I have seen him after his death, that I have seen him alive. These people testify that they are given the truth, so help them God. And they believe that what they've seen is the Christ. And as a juror, we've got to make a decision. Do we believe just like these who testified? Are we with them in saying that we are this company of witnesses who stand on the face of the earth and say that Christ lives and He lives within me? How could, he, how could I be this person one day and be this person the next day if Christ had not changed me. Are you included within this company of witnesses to affirm that Jesus is alive within your heart? Can we add a number seven here to a group of another group of people who says, I have seen him. I may not have seen him physically, but I have seen him. And he lives within me. And when you see me, you see the Christ because he's changed me from the inside out. He has taken up residence in this temple. He inhabits the temple of my heart. And he has invaded my presence. And the inwardness of Christ lives within me. And I want to live for him with all my being because I want to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm going to love others as I love myself. I'm going to go great distances for him. I'm going to go where he calls me to go. I'm going to do what what purpose he's given me to do. I'm going to live for him and I'm going to die by living for him. That's the type of testimony that the Lord God wants in your life and mine. To be sold out for him 
because he is alive and that he is real. It's no longer a cave of death. It's become a tomb of life. And he moves the stone back from our heart and he comes to live inside this tomb. If you've never committed your life to Jesus, let him roll away the stone of doubt, the stone of pain, the stone of sin, the stone of selfishness. And let Christ shine into your darkness. And once you have the light, it snuffs out the darkness. And you're able to go free and live as he intended you to live. There's no greater time than to say, Lord Jesus, I call on you to come live within me. To shine your light into my dark world and to save me from my sin. I promise you, there is no greater prayer, no greater request, and it will be a request that will be immediately answered if you call on him. It will not be, wait, I'll get back with you, I'll talk to you, someone, and I'll call you in about a week. No, he says, I will come to live within you the moment you invite me in. Will you do that? Or it may just be that you, you, need, a, you need to kind of Create a new window to allow a little bit more light into your life. In other words, just fall back in love with Jesus. What a great commitment. Say, I love him, but I want to love him more. I serve him, but I want to serve him more. I, I live for him, but I want my life to be lived for him. What greater commitment than that? We're going to offer an invitation once again this morning to give you an opportunity to respond. Those at home, you can respond as well. And it's simply just by bowing your head and closing your eyes and saying, Lord Jesus, come live within me. And if you've made that commitment, those who are at home and listening, our number shows up on the screen every Sunday. It's on our website. Pick up that phone and call that number. We will answer and get back with you, talk with you, help you in any way we can. But also we offer an invitation in this very place for those who need prayer, maybe to come to the altar and kneel and bow and say, Lord, it is I again. Here I am. May we talk again. It may be a commitment of your life. It may be a commitment to church membership because you've been missing that in your life. There's no greater time than to make those commitments today. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you give us opportunity, you give us privilege, you even give us the joy of being able to release ourselves from being captive to our own emotions so that we can open ourselves up to the greatest thrill of knowing you. Realizing that as we commit our life to you, that we're committing our life to a resurrected Jesus. We're committing our lives to a Jesus that is alive that we're committing our lives to a Jesus that can do amazing things, that can go before us, can precede us, can work out all the intricate details and place us right where we're supposed to be at that given time anointed by you. Father, we thank you that we serve a risen Savior, that we serve a Savior who grants to us the, the purity of life, that grants to us the powerfulness 
of living life uh, amongst the world in which we interact with. That even in our mess ups, even in our attitudes, even in our actions, even the times we fail you, you're there to uplift us, encourage us, to help us be better people each and every day, learning from our mistakes so that we are the better people serving you every day of our life. Thank you, God, for covering our sin. Thank you for giving us hope. Thank you for giving us life. As we make these commitments today, may our hearts be fresh and poured out before you. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to inundate and anoint our very mind, heart, and soul this day. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.